As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast in which we speak with some of the brightest minds working in the media business today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. The critically acclaimed drama series Pachinko wraps up its first season on Apple TV this week. It's just the latest buzzworthy show to come out of Media Res, an independent studio led by my next guest. Michael Ellenberg is also producer of The Morning Show and Scenes from a Marriage, among others. And he's here to talk about what it's been like to sell series in this streaming-heavy world in just a moment. We're back with Michael Ellenberg of Media Res, the company behind Pachinko, The Morning Show, and a lot more. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to be here. Great. So you launched back in 2017 with backing from Braun Studios. So your company's coming up on its fifth anniversary. And I wanted to know how your expectations of how this was going to go squared with your actual experience. Was it tougher, crazier? Look back for me. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's like a first uh, uh, a kind of first period closing. Um, I would say, you know, when you start a business, almost everything is surprising. You know, there's uh, um, what was accurate in terms of the business land, the things that there were things we were super right about, and then all the execution is much trickier. The thing, okay. the basic premise was, you know, I'd been in, when my tenure at HBO, I'd been there for five years. And when I started there, you know, Netflix had bought House of Cards, but wasn't that, it wasn't like an important player yet in, in series. Uh, Hulu, did what, like none of these players, all the players that we are so define us didn't matter. By the time I left, you know, uh, Netflix was, you know, maybe the lead buyer at the time, Amazon had emerged, Hulu, et cetera. And I had one simple business idea, which is that will, there will be more of that than less in the future. And right. Apple would come on and the, this, the landscape of this would explode and was, and that you didn't, you would only glimpsed how big it was going to become. And I think that's, you know, even now, five years later, it's still not clear what the end is, right? Meaning there's still further growth, further appetite, further demand. There's shift in emphasis for all these players. So 
so the basic premise of there's going to be a lot of series ordered and if you can be a supplier in that environment great and also that there would be a need for a company like mine which was you know the simple idea of media res a few things one there are a few simple ideas one it'd be great for creators to have a home to do their best work to do really innovative work and really distinct work um and kind of incubate the project fully before going to market and that um you need sophisticated suppliers for these streamers because they can only do so much themselves and if you could both manage these projects well um manage the process well for both the creators and the network people be glad about glad to have you i was always looking at you know, when i was at hbo it was always be nice to have a company on the other end of the phone who could you know who got what we wanted and could do it right and so and you know you have enough fires going every day when you're a network exec and even more so now every network exec is like when you talk to them they have 20 shows going um so you'd like a couple where you don't have to put the fires out right so those are sort of yeah those sort of simple premises um and um and create a really unique in uh, creative home and so that's been so the market you know the market's been fertile and big and um and then everything else has been much more complicated and trickier to pull off um, but you know We'll continue from there. <laughs> and as you mentioned, you've worked on the other side of the fence at HBO. You developed some pretty big shows there, Westworld, True Detective. So now that you're on the other side of the fence, how is it different? How is the market different? Are you, are you operating in more of a seller's market than when you were at HBO? Off, yeah. I mean, it's it's way more so. You know, uh, the way it's you know, the, there used to be, as you know, really one buyer for these kinds of shows. Now there's, now, you know, we're entering, you know, we're in the consolidated era, so we're down to five or six buyers, but for the really big stuff, there were never that many networks, right? Like, so there's way more than there used to be. And so if you get, if you have the right elements involved, you have either the right uh, IP, the right star, the right element, whatever it is, or the right just concept, um, yeah, you can still create a big market frenzy um, um, as a seller, um, but you know, but these buyers are also quite, quite powerful. So I doubt they would refer to it as a seller's market. I think, I think they feel like they've, they've, they've plenty of control over, over the outcome right now. And I would imagine that control is only going to grow in, as you referred to, this consolidated marketplace. HBO now, of course, part of a whole new conglomerate mm -hmm. set up at Warner Brothers Discovery. So. How does your company hold its own, get the best terms for itself in a world where they're getting bigger and more powerful on the other side of the negotiation table? You know, I think that by um, sticking to basics is the truth, Andrew, which is um, um, there's only, whether there's 10,000 shows, 50 shows, you know, it doesn't really matter. There's always only so many that are really good, right? There's always, and, um, and I don't know that the volume of things ordered actually changes things that much in that regard. So um, so if you stick to basics, you know, which is for us, it's, it's you know, uh, what's, you know, we look at white spaces, what's not on the air, what's interesting to us, the basic question the company asks from myself to my assistant, to the interns, to Lindsay Springer, our great head of creative, is um, first and foremost, if it was on the Netflix screen, the Apple screen, whatever screen, would we click on that tile first, right? And if the answer is yes, we're all hard to please consumers with widely varied backgrounds. If the answer for us is yes, the odds are a lot, it will be yes for a lot of other people. So, so, so what we try to do is find both unique voices with something to say 
um, and saying in a new way. And if you bring that to market, um, buyers get excited. You know, I mean, they want to be stimulated too. They are pitched this. They, yeah, this is an era where being really different is better than being slightly similar. You know, and um, that's not always the case in Hollywood. Um, and so, as long as long as you're bringing something that's special, unique. Um, and they feel, we try to put a lot of love and care into what we do. We don't go to market very often. So I think when we come to market, um, people take it seriously. Whether you know whether they buy it or not is a different question, but I think they always they can always tell we, we've given a lot of uh, thought and care to it. So being different, I would imagine, gets harder in a marketplace that is as cluttered as it is. And yet, you know, let's talk about Pachinko, which... There's there's not a lot of projects like this, this multi-generational, trilingual epic. I mean, to me, that sort of errors on the other side of could something be too different? What what gave you the confidence to take a risk on something like this? This. OK, so it, difference is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. Right. So um, obviously, Pachinko is quite different than anything in market um, in, in a kind of broad sense, particularly in American sense. Um, but you know, if you're paying attention to K drama and Korean content in general, K dramas have been huge not just in Korea but globally for quite a long time, well past five years ago. But not um, in the U.S. market, at least for a time. For a time, right? And then the burgeoning, but you could see that happening. But they were big in many other territories, and I will say, a small focus group, my mother. Um, <laughs> so, so, so non-Korean speakers have been watching them, and. Um, and so what was exciting, so the book was beautiful and great. And it seemed also like a unique opportunity, could you, which to build a premium audience where if you could draw from a Korean audience, an American audience, maybe a Japanese audience, Asian American um, uh, and other emigrants around the world, you could build a, pre, a, a meaningful hit uh, across multiple territories, right? So it didn't have to be ginormous in any one space if it did well in all these various spaces, and then the rest of the world is is gravy potentially, right? Um, and so that was there was a business logic to it, um, and and then there was this more simple thing, which is a story like this has never been told, and yet it's quite universal. You know, you don't have to look far around the world right now to see stories of war, displacement, refugees, family separation, um, and uh, unique uh, explorations of identity and uh, family. Um, and so even though this was an incredibly specific story, uh, I guess I felt a strong conviction and we felt in the company that you could in both honoring this Korean story, uh, Zainichi story, that if you, if you got that actually truthfully, tr if you execute that in a truthful, authentic manner, it would only speak directly to, to the people it's about, but everyone else would see themselves in it too. And in a way, the book was the, was the test, which is the book was a bestseller well beyond those markets, right? So if people were willing to read the book who weren't from that background, uh, our belief was people would be able, would, would want to watch the show as well. Well, it's certainly resonating with audiences. It, it's certainly resonating with critics. I, I've never seen, it, it goes back years, the kind of critic response that this show has gotten. So I got to imagine Apple TV may want more of something like Pachinko. Is that even possible, given that you sort of drew this from the book? Or are you able to go forward with the story yeah, like the, this? The, um, the book, oh, the, uh, the series only covers kind of the first. Suhu had this brilliant approach, which was to intercut 
kind of past and present of the novel together. And we should Sue explain was, Sue is the one who adapted the oh, book. Oh, sorry. Sue Hugh is our showrunner and adapter and really essential to us believing we could pull this thing off. Um, so we actually only finish a portion of the events of the book from in season one. So um, we think, yeah, there's plenty more story to tell uh, going forward um, uh, before. Uh, and Sue's expanded on events in the novel already and she'll continue to do so. But, but we have plenty in the novel to still still cover. Got it. Um, of course, Pachinko is not the only show you've got on Apple TV. There is The Morning Show, which is currently working on a third season uh, that I guess will come out at some point, perhaps next year. The Morning Show, I think, whereas Pachinko, you know, universal critical uh, praise, The Morning Show, I think, has had a more polarizing response. I'm curious if that's how you see it and is that a problem as you go into a third season that you intend to fix? I know there's a new showrunner. Just want to get a sense of how you look at where that show is going in its third season. Yeah, I mean, I take, um, I think everyone, you know, who does, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I take critical response pretty seriously and you um, you don't want to over-index to it, right? Because um, uh, you want to learn from it and, and get a feel for it. At the same time, um, the show uh, has a huge audience. It's hugely loved and you feel that love. So you try to listen to a lot of sources, both critics, audiences, friends, industry, and kind of get a, a, it's a gestalt feel of, is it working? And then I've had all to my work over the years, the stuff I've worked on, all range of critical response. And you always take it seriously. At the same time, you can't take it too seriously because you got to move forward and, and do what you do. Um, so. Um, what you do want to chase for the morning show, certainly we're going to chase in season three, which is, you know, the, keep it relevant, provocative, entertaining, but, uh, but also, you know, it's, it's a loved show, you know, and so, um, and has a deep, and the audience has a deep connection to these characters and to this world. We've done very well in the awards uh, nominations this year. Um, so uh, guilds and our peers really love the show. And so that matters a lot too. And, um, and um, yeah, and we'll see, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that critics, uh, you know, they're not that inclined to also revisit these things over time. So, so, it, so uh, it, you can chase your tail a little bit uh, if you mm -hmm. do it. I also wanted to get a sense of what it's like working with Apple TV, which, you know, I think has, uh, contrary to the rest of Apple, uh, a reputation that's sort of more like up and coming as opposed to the big giant dominant player in this space. But they've got some real heat, heat now, thanks to some of your shows, thanks to an Oscar win. Um, what is it like? Have you seen an evolution in working with Apple TV over this time? Yeah, Apple's been an amazing partner for this company, and it's it's well said. Like they're the you know for you know for an established company as Apple is, uh, the the TV Plus uh, is the scrappy upstart, and so for Media Res, which was scrappy upstart. I think we've had a certain synergistic uh, and like-minded approach. Um, they're growing, yeah. You know, they're maturing. You know, like uh, hopefully we all, as you as you build on on your work, and they've been staffing up so rapidly, um, they get more and more sophisticated and more and more capable, and their ambitions are only growing, and that's exciting. And they're what's really cool about them, and it's, it's I feel very fortunate for media res in this regard, which is. When you're part of a company like that, that's that's exploding and growing, um, 
uh, they're ambitious and they're not tied to what they've done. You know, you're not, they're, you're not tied to a lot of rules about what has to have been. We've always had success this way. Um, you're making, they're making the rules up as they go along. And, you, and if you're working with them, you get to be a part of that, of, of designing the system. And that's just a rare and neat opportunity. And, um, and you know, they're obviously their global ambitions, just like every streamer are large and they're moving more and more in that direction. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, they've, they've been amazing partners. They're cool. And of course, it's not your only partner. You're working with other networks and streaming services. What I'm wondering, though, is, you know, my guess is back in your days at HBO, there was something different about selling to HBO and what HBO's creative needs are, what Showtime's needs are, FX's. I don't know that I'm necessarily seeing much differentiation in the current landscape. It just seems like because of the volume of all the content out there, everybody's buying everything. Am I reading it wrong? Do you get a clear sense of like, no, this company's looking for X, this company's looking for Y? I think Andrew super well stated your question. I, I think what's most, what's probably more relevant now about the streamers is what they share in common, right? In that regard. Um, which is, um, you know, they're all doing sufficient volume that it's hard to say there's a, sh you know, with, with some exceptions at each place, you know, but that there's really a show that would only land somewhere. Uh, that said, um, these companies, we believe in the human factor, like human beings matter, the human beings who do these jobs matter. And um, when you're working with them, they're not um, Netflix, the giant corporation or Apple giant corporation, there are a few human beings on the other end of the Zoom or uh, hopefully at the other end of the meeting in person at some point again. And in that there's, of course, there's variation. And so when you're bringing, when you're putting shows together, you are looking for the right champion for your creator, for the show, for the project. And those different, you know, they're human beings in each place and they have their quirks and, the, and, their, and their specific sensibilities. And they're all pretty bright. Um, um, but they have things they fall in love with. And so if you're in, in Media Res's shoes, uh, we're looking for the champion for each thing who's going to love it enough and care about it to nurture you through these giant machines, right? Because um, um, that, that's what creators need uh, in, in, in those buildings. We're going to learn more about Media Res in just a moment. We'll be back with Michael Ellenberg. And we are back with Michael Ellenberg of the production studio Media Res, maker of shows like Pachinko and The Morning Show. Michael, Media Res recently announced an expansion into the nonfiction space. Uh, what, does, what, what drove your decision to expand into this? Um, you know, the... Uh, first and foremost, we simply like these shows, right? And um, and so um, a lot of our scripted work has actually been based on uh, nonfiction stories. Uh, Morning Show, most famously, you know, I had a concept for this show, but then optioned Brian Stelter's book, Top of the Morning. So so we use the real world to inspire a lot of our material, and uh, it just seemed like a logical evolution to say, okay, well, we're building a lot of fiction out of this work. Maybe we should just tell the truth of it. Um, and then similarly. Um, you know, the, these show, both doc series and doc films are more and more vital to the networks. Um, and as a consumer, I'm, I wish there was more premium doc series. Um, and so I thought, well, rather than what you know, we thought, rather than wait for, for more of them to be made, we should, we should help make some of those. So, um, 
that was that, that's the impetus, the impetus for us. But is there a difference in terms of selling scripted and selling docus? Uh, are there sort of uh, is there a, a bigger appetite? It certainly seems more of this content is particularly on the streaming services than ever. Yeah, I think um, what what had be you know what was a when HBO really innovated in the space twenty years ago now. Um, uh, they believed in the space artistically, but it was it was a brand halo. I think they've been pretty open about that. It was it was a means of building a kind of brand identity more than a, uh, an audience play. Um, and then I think what's again one of the amazing things about this era is um, these 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 films are accessible, the series are accessible, and they're huge. People watch them. They drive viewership. You feel in your own lives in your own conversations you're having. So Definitely. yeah. So how they're packaged, how they're sold. You know, if uh, it'd be good to have a music label right now, it seems that there is no end to the uh, music doc appetite. Um, but it's also I, I view it from a creative perspective pretty similarly to 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 when premium series exploded, which is kind of what genres haven't been done yet. And there's plenty in doc in doc series in particular things that haven't been explored yet, and arenas to still uh, to innovate in and um, and so. Uh, it's 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 similar in that you want to be in in um, if you've got the new thing that really stands out the market moves um, um, and and they need to for us at least you know we really want everything to have a cinematic value you know want cinematic television and a kind of cinematic sheen to it so we're always looking for uh, exceptional filmmakers as well to partner in this space um, you're also competing with the great production value of modern scripted series. And so you don't want a kind of collapse when you watch a doc series anymore, I think. Do you have any concerns though, whether we're talking about scripted or unscripted, about maybe an end to this boom? Uh, you saw, for instance, last quarter, uh, Zaslav over at Warner Brothers Discovery saying, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna increase spending, but not necessarily all that much. You know, Do you feel there's a point where finally the number starts to hit a ceiling? I, I think you're seeing for each individual company, and certainly what you're reading about with, um, uh, uh, well, with each individual company, they'll hit some plateau probably in the United States. Um, and then what's clear is the rest of the world is wide open, right? So um, I think as we look forward, um, I don't know that for the kinds of shows we focus on, I don't feel much of a, a limit hitting. Because um, if you're at the high end of the market, this, I think there's going to be plenty of demand going forward. It's just a maturing market. Uh, but outside of the U.S., um, I don't think it's clear at all what the end of that will look like. Um, I think we're just at the early stages of what international expansion looks like. And does an English language producing content player like yourself um, look out at this broader global marketplace? And could you get into things like local programming, understanding that there's no such thing really as local anymore, everything travels, but are you that far into this where you're saying, you know what, I could make this work in the UK, I could make this work in Asia? Yes, is the answer, Andrew. It's not, it's, um, you wanna, you know, we have a sensibility here that we we uh, think matters abroad and Pachinko is a piece of that. Um, and so at least for now, yeah, we think we could do more abroad. You want to be looking, I think there's local language, which no longer matters. Um, I think there's a difference between whether you're building a show that you really you know, uh, are only looking to succeed in a local territory versus a show that you think can succeed globally. 
and that and so for us we're going to be looking for shows that we think can work uh all around the world whether they're in english language or other languages um and um but yeah i think there's an i think what pachinko represents is a kind of merger of approaches of a kind of american style production and showrunner model uh with an international international production in a foreign language series and and i think it speaks that's why it's connecting so much globally you know, we're seeing companies like your own in the independent production space, like uh, Hello Sunshine or Westbrook, selling all or parts of themselves for big bucks. Is that where Media Res is headed? Um, we're going to be open to growth opportunities. If it allows us to do not just more, but do better, um, then for sure. You know, I mean, we want to, we want to, uh, we like what we do. We like making things and we like making good things. Um, and so we're going to be open to opportunities uh, where uh, we can uh, 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 expand our reach in ways that we think um, can still maintain the quality we've we've been uh, striving for. And is scaling with the ability to to meet the demand in the marketplace? Uh, I can imagine Media Res probably as a company has grown from well, you tell me, you know, a few, a handful of people to a hundred. Like, give me a sense of how you've been able to grow this thing quickly. Yeah, we're not we're not that big yet, uh, but we're we've grown a lot. That's correct. And um, and there's and there's always a tension between uh, call you know sort of volume and quality. Um, but we we think we can do quite a bit more volume before we've hit that wall. And you know, you go show by show, you know, like. We've built as need, as uh, we've, <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend it, but I don't know if there's another way to do it. Some of it's yes, you're building the plane as you're flying it or the car as you're driving it. Pick your pick your tortured transportation metaphor. <laughs> um, um, and, um, but we're also in, a, we're in a growth era. And so I don't, I don't think whether you're a company of media as a size, Apple TV plus or Netflix for that matter. I think everyone's in the similar boat, which is you're trying to meet demand. You're trying to to as you as you as you make new shows or new films, you know, build the staff as you're doing it. And there's labor shortages everywhere in the economy right now, um, and so it's it's a pain in the uh, derriere, uh, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else is coming up for you? I know, for instance, you've got a deal uh, with Boots Riley for a project, and uh, I would imagine just the sheer volume of what you're working on is increasing. Yeah, so we're, I'm actually in New Orleans right now. We're filming Boots Riley's show here um, and in Oakland, um, which is great. And then we're doing that for Amazon Prime. Um, uh, and we don't have a release date yet. We haven't wrapped yet. Um, and then we're also in post on our uh, series for Apple's uh, that Scott Burns uh, uh, created called Extrapolations, which is, I think, one of the first huge scale uh, series uh, that looks at human changes to climate changes and really Scott's put together an unbelievable cast on that show. I think it's a pretty visionary series uh, that we're, uh, we're quite excited about as well. How does a show about climate change work? Because on the one hand, obviously, it's one of the biggest subjects out there. It's also sort of a very tough subject, something that I wonder, you know, can it really translate to entertainment? Is there a way you're sort of navigating that balance? Yeah, it's very early, so we haven't spoke. I mean, we've announced the show, and obviously, uh, but we haven't done any um, press yet. And so I want to let Scott speak for his show first. Um, but yeah, I think that's why we took it on. I think, um, look, 
the company believe I believe everyone at the company believes that uh, the public's engaged by the events and reality of the day, you know, and so um, you have to find intelligent, unique stories that tell you something you don't know. Um, if you're simply telling whether it's whatever, whatever, um, uh, let's like, if you're being topical, if you're simply letting people know about the event, um, then there's no reason to watch. But uh, I think Scott's found a pretty unique way in to look at um, human responses to these events. So it's less about how the climate changes, more about how we change, who we are. Um, and um, yeah, I think people will be pretty moved by it. And uh, you'll be uh, on a ride with some pretty amazing actors and uh, lots of bells. Yeah, we, we give lots of bells and whistles as, uh, a, a, along along with it, Andrew. So yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I don't. I think uh, Don't Look Up is a good example, by the way. Um, that was a humongous movie for Netflix, and a ton of people watched it. Um, and that film literally ends with the end of the world. So I feel like <laughs> we're way more optimistic uh, than that already. So uh, so so. Uh, yeah, I think I think the public is. I think uh, we believe you should assume the audience is smart. Assume they're smarter than you, and um, you'll be rewarded for that. I think if um, and so we're, we're not. Uh, I think audiences like to be challenged. I don't like to assume the audience is any different than you or me. Meaning, like we like to be challenged, we like to be inspired, and we like you know. And depends on your mood. Sometimes you want to lean back and uh, zone out, but you know, plenty of the time you want to lean in. And um, and if and I think the. I, think much more of the audience is that way than, than um, we sometimes give them credit for. Well, looking forward to seeing extrapolations and a whole lot more from Media Res. Thank you, Michael, for taking the time out to talk to me today. Thank you, Andrew, so much. It was really a pleasure. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Yeah.